Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where you talk about the luxury and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride this week is TJ2, the deuce. How you doing, T? Good. How are you? Hanging in there. Um, you're not. You're you're a complete. You're you're a complete liar. Yeah. We'll get to that. None of this. You look and you look and sound like hell. <laughs> and then we have Will the Thrill, who's going to be our storyteller this week. Yeah, I'm doing great, by the way. Thanks for asking. <laughs> so, uh, you know, this was a two bad things, one good thing kind of week. Number the the good thing is the vaccine started going out, so that's great. But we also lost Boba Fett. So that sucks. Yeah, Jeremy Bullock. That's that's two two Star Wars originals in what about two weeks? Yeah. Well, there was a picture LD you showed, but it's just heartbreaking. It's a picture of what is it? Uh, it's an artist rendering of Chewie carrying Princess Leia with R two D two, Boba Fett, and Darth Vader in the background. It's so sad. Oh, jeez. They're all gone. <laughs> when when that see it, when people do things like that, it just tears you up. Somebody um, if you if you remember earlier this year, Road Warrior Animal, the wrestler died. Yeah, and somebody actually used like either little thumb wrestlers or action figures that showed, and it showed from the back like him w- walking down the aisle to the wrestling ring, and Road Warrior Hulk, who was his tag team partner for a long time and had passed away several years ago, holding the ropes open for him. Oh. And then there was there was another one that showed him coming in the ring and like Roddy Piper, Dusty Rhodes, Randy Savage, and this is all like little toys are waiting to greet him. Like in wrestling heaven, sort of heartbreaking. Aww. Yeah, but so I, yeah, those are I. I enjoy those, but then they make me sad. Yes, and then I don't. I I appreciate them, but then they make me cry, and then I like them much less. So are you? So are you? Are you snorting Sudafed or? <laughs> I wish I could. Oh God, if I had the if I had the power to do it, I would. No. So for our listeners, I have sinusitis, and it feels like I got shot in the neck, and that. Uh, I have weights crushing my face constantly. And so I'm on a massive amount of amoxicillin. And so this week was actually supposed to be my week to do this episode. So I did like I normally do. I did all my research, put everything together. And then on like Tuesday, I woke up and it felt like someone was crushing my windpipe. And of course, like, you know, me and you, we grew up just not going to the doctor. 
Like, mom, like, yeah. you just broke your arm. It'll heal. You'll be fine. Yeah, rub, rub some dirt on it, puss. <laughs> yeah, you'll be fine. So I waited till Friday to call the doctor. And apparently, you just can't call a doctor anymore thanks to COVID. So I yeah. had to go through this, like, whole electronic analysis of my symptoms. and like. Did you do, like, a telemedicine visit? Yeah, yeah, kind of. Oh, computer, uh, yeah. All, it's all through the computer. And remember, so- remember the good old days when if you sent a picture of your um, swollen, discolored junk to a doctor, it was called like sexual harassment, and now it's called <laughs> telemedicine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So as 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 okay as I might sound, do I sound okay? Yeah, you're you're you're, you're okay. You're you're holding it. You're hanging in there. Hanging there. Well, so uh, Will stepped in. And he's going to read the episode this week. Now, it's his voice. It's my words. So, of course, there's probably some misspellings. There's probably duplicates. I don't know. This is going to conclude our sort of housekeeping series, I think. Yeah. Yep. And uh, so I'm going to pass this over to Mr. Hickey. And uh, there, there. Good luck. Um, By the way, did you happen to see the, the post? On Facebook, Travis. Which one? It's <laughs> somebody didn't recommend us because it said the show was great until they added the two hillbillies. <laughs> I wonder, I'm wondering who that is. Did somebody really put that? Yes, yes, it's actually there. Okay, I'm I'm gonna go way out on a ledge and say I'm probably one of the hillbillies. Um, but but the other person who got quote added to the show is from New Jersey. Yeah, I uh, so, and. It- one of the original hosts is from South Carolina. She is a hillbilly. Now she doesn't sound like it anymore. You uh, now the, now the 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 Chester Mill Hill comes out in your voice occasionally on certain words here and there, but for the most part, the slow Southern drawl of yours is gone. Now I still have it. I'm very comfortable. I'm very comfortable sounding uh, admitting that I yes, I am one of the hillbillies of which you speak. Now, if Anon- I think- I'm one of the hillbillies of which you speak, anonymous ranker. If if I think about this in the diagnosis of too much giggling, is there a rock and roll seven podcast with like a bunch of new hillbillies and giggling that we're getting mistaken? <laughs> I just have to ask. Well, welcome to the giggling hillbilly dead rock and roll hour. Rock and roll seven podcast. Yeah. So again, I I refer to the immortal words of the late uh, oh what was his name the judge and my cousin Vinny he was fantastic. Uh, anyway, his words of can you describe the two Utes, sir, so we can get a ruling on this. Uh, yeah, it's just I don't I don't understand who are the two hillbillies that were added. The two hillbillies that were at because two people because one because one host who decidedly was not a hillbilly did leave. But I she, believe she was from Minnesota, mm-hmm. and um one one of the people added. It's from a place called Santuck, South Carolina. So that hillbilly, sure. Um, the other one's from Jersey. Yeah. And has never lived in the South, I don't think. Have you? I actually have. I lived in North Carolina for two years, but I don't think that qualifies me as a hillbilly. Yeah, I don't think it's stuck, though. Yeah. <laughs> no. So, yeah, okay, well. Well, here we are. All right, well, here we go. We are now going to jump into... Eddie Cochran. Eddie Cochran. Uh, I did not know a lot about Eddie Cochran going into this, and I felt bad because I feel that he is such a pivotal figure in rock that I was embarrassed to not know about him. And now I do, thanks to the research that LD did and a little digging of my own to create what I hope is an accurate portrait for our friend Brandon, was the listener, Brandon, uh, who had requested Eddie Cochran. uh, Okay, so here's the thing. Very similar, Will the Thrill. 
right. just before we started, I was like, ah, I better bone up on Eddie Cochran just a little bit because I, I really only know a handful of his songs. Yeah. And as it turns out, that that's all there is. Well, the guy because too, he died. He died so young. Yeah, there's not a, a huge there's not a huge body of work there. Now the influence extends to infinity, but in other, terms of just the work that he left behind, there is not a whole whole lot of it. No, and, and to your point, yeah, he left. I mean, he died. He wasn't even 22 when he died. So, and, and if you think of most of that work was done from 17 to 22, that's only five years. And I actually do believe that. And I don't know why I keep getting them, but I do believe that this is one of the youngest people that we've had on the show. That being said, we did say, you know, uh, Christina Grimmy was the youngest at 22. Actually, I think now this is this is bumping it even younger. He was so. Eddie Cochran was 21 when, when he passed. Yeah. So let's take a look. He was the grandfather of Rockabilly. And again, he didn't even see the age of 22. He only cut one album in his entire lifetime. Wow. One. Now that, that excludes singles, which we'll get into, but it was only one definitive album. And yet he was one of the biggest influences on the 1960s British invasion of acts that you know and love. He was good looking. He was talented. He had it all. And then we lost him. So let's dive in now to the life and times of Raymond... Edward Cochran, born October 3rd, 1938. Now, there is some contention over which state he belongs to. And not only that, but there is some contention onto what his actual name was. Yeah, I found Raymond Edward. I found, I found Raymond Edward. I found Edward Raymond. And I found, I think, Ed Raymond's son somewhere. Like, it's... So, we're just going to go with... Raymond. I did some independent research and found Jimmy Jack Ledbetter. Huh. Well. Not not really. <laughs> so a lot of states laid claim to him. Let me give you a little summary here as to where he ultimately wound up, at least according to the birth records. Oklahoma City was actually a hub of the working class in the early 1900s, and that's where his grandparents, Joseph and Corda Cochran, resided in Oklahoma City. That was in 1922, so we're actually getting through the Roaring Twenties with the Great Depression not too far on the horizon. And they actually lived within walking distance of the family-owned business Cochrane & Son, which was an auto repair shop. Joe's eldest son, Frank, worked as a mechanic inside the shop, and sure enough, that is Frank Cochrane, who married in 1923 Alice Whitley, even though he was the young age of 17 and she a mere 16. Scandalous. I know, right? And they quickly moved out of that house in Oklahoma City. And then what happened? The economy started to turn. In 1925, the family business folded. This is still in Oklahoma. Frank and his father found various jobs. And while they were in Oklahoma, Frank and Alice gave birth to three children. Gloria in 1924, Bill in 1925, and Robert in 1928. Now, a quick note here, because I did get some information on this and some people had actually asked me about this is he related to tom cochran no that's a different spelling and tom cochran is actually born in lake manitoba canada so i was gonna say, I was gonna say tom yeah. Co yes tom tom cochran of life as a highway famous from canada he is a canadian yes so there is no connection whatsoever other famous cochran's perhaps the corporate offices of the wilson and company were located in oklahoma city near the oklahoma city stockyards 
Frank's sister Flo and her husband Vance worked there in management positions. And as the Great Depression was coming in, they were quickly moved to the plant in Albert Lee, Minnesota. That's Albert and Lee. I think it's Leah, L-E-A. But I think it's Albert Lee, forgive my mispronunciation. It is documented that Flo was able to secure that job for Frank in Minnesota. And he packed up the family, goes to Minnesota some point between 1929 and 1930. He finds work as mentioned. And in 1938, the family welcomes their fifth child, Raymond Edward, Eddie Cochran. So he is technically a Minnesotan. I think that settles it. His birth certificate shows that his mother was a housewife by profession and his father a mechanic, probably at the aforementioned Wilson and Company. Eddie's oldest brother, Bill, as we mentioned, was the first child. He actually went off to the Marine Corps around uh, when Eddie was about 10 or so. And he left Eddie behind a Gibson guitar, which Eddie took to right away. And by the time he was 13 years old, he was absolutely obsessed with the guitar and loved music. He attended Albert Lee High School, first at Ramsey Elementary School and then junior high at Albert Lee Central. His pictures in both 1952 and 1953 high school yearbooks. And in them, Eddie also is pictured with the Methodist Church Confirmation class of 1950. It was around this point, around, so around the age of 14, where Eddie started playing with a local group called the Melody Boys. He was actually the only one, however, who had an interest in music. He wanted to join the school band as a drummer, but he opted for trombone instead. But he found out that in order to play trombone, the instructor required him to take piano lessons. So it was kind of a roundabout mess. And then the director of the school finally said that Eddie didn't have the, quote, lip for the trombone. So he suggested he play the clarinet. Well, Eddie took one look at the clarinet and absolutely refused. He says, I'm not doing that. So he quickly drops out of the orchestra. Uh, he went to a local shop and got one of those chord books. If you remember those old guitar books, they teach you the chords. Yeah. You kind of picked through it, and oh, that's yeah. how we started training on guitar. Those are the kinds with, like, the, the oh, God, the jiggle spine. Yeah. The, 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 the plastic, the, yeah. yeah the, the plastic spine that you could open it all the way up. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. That's how he basically taught himself. And in 1951, the Cochran's moved again, this time to California, which is another state that has laid claim to Eddie kind of being a local hero. And in many ways, he is. We'll get into that in a little bit, because I think he carved out a large piece of his career here in L.A., and they make their way to L.A., and one of the things that was a point of contention was the guitar. They said they didn't have room in the car. Eddie said, and I quote, for pity's, his mother said, for pity's sake, Eddie, with all the other odds and ends we have to carry, that guitar isn't a prized possession in the household. You know, possession mom, he came back. This guitar is my best friend. And so they brought the guitar. Aww. All the way to lovely Bell Gardens, California, which those of you who live in this area know that's a suburb of Los Angeles, still in L.A. County. In September of 1951, Eddie would meet somebody who would be in and out of his life periodically as a fellow musician and music enthusiast, and that is Conrad Smith, a.k.a. Connie. Connie shared the same musical interests as Eddie, and he played an upright bass in the school orchestra. He was also quite talented in playing the steel guitar and mandolin. Two very odd choices, I think. They formed a trio in 1953 with another student on the lead guitar. And they often practiced in the rehearsal room at the back of the local music store, which was the Bell Garden Music Center. So, so this is, this is um, I mean, those are traditional country slash bluegrass instruments. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The, the steel guitar. Absolutely. That, you know, that hillbillies like may listen to. Mm -hmm. Or 
and and the other hillbilly on this, on this show. show yeah the two yes of the show <laughs> just, uh, and i just asked them i said who are the two hillbillies i know which one one is <laughs> who's, who's the, the other one what podcast are you listening to yes Look, I, look on look on one count, guilty is charged. I just don't know who, who the other person he's accusing. Is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, just, I was giggling. Well, the real hillbilly bad. put a coin in the jar. Yeah. So we have the giggle jar and the hillbilly jar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the the store, the Bell Garden Music Center, was owned by a gentleman named Bert Kaiser, and he already spotted Eddie's talent. And actually, he went on later to give him a very nice deal on what would be. Eddie's iconic guitar, which for those of you who know that it is a Gretsch uh, 5230, I believe, with a red sunburst pattern. Uh, it is iconic, and it has actually eventually found its way into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, Ohio. Eddie started playing whatever he could. He found gigs at store openings, parties, any place where he could make a few extra bucks and just play music. He was down for it. He finally graduated in 1954, and he enrolled in high school, but he spent all of his time playing music and trying to learn from local musicians in the L.A. scene, so quitting school was really an inevitable thing for Eddie. It was bound to happen. One of his influences, I think, uh, TJ, you'll be a fan of this one, was the late, great Chester Burton Atkins, known as Chet. Mm. Yep. The Country Gentleman, or Mr. Guitar, as some refer to him. Yes, and an, out, an outstanding guitar player, too. Oh, yeah, unbelievable. And, and, and then an eventual producer and record executive and a huge, huge name in the music industry in general. I believe he, he covered Yakety Sax, didn't he? Yes, yes, he called it Yakety Axe. Yakety Axe, that was it, yeah. Yep, 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 yep sure did. Uh, he had Windy and Warm, Wild, Wildwood Flower, The Entertainer, all wonderful songs that Chet played. So Chet was one of Eddie's biggest influences. He loved the complex bass melodies and the picking style that Chet had. Again, Mr. Guitar was his moniker, so the guy knew his way around the six strings. But it helped Eddie become incredibly dexterous on the instrument. It also didn't hurt that he was extremely intelligent, naturally curious, and just insanely good-looking. Uh, his mother claimed that everything was easy to him. He was even an honor student at one point. And those around him said that once he heard a song once or twice, he could play almost anything. Uh, that was actually corroborated by Chuck Foreman, who was a musician in L.A., who jammed with him, saying, when I met Eddie, he couldn't have been more than 15 or 16 years old. And we were listening to a lot of jazz in those days. I remember we had old Johnny Smith Royal Roost at 78 RPM records. Smith was playing a lot of triads, and this really fascinated Eddie. He'd say, for triads, those are three-finger chords, for those of you who are not sure what those are. He'd say, I wonder how the hell he's doing that. And in no time at all, he picked it up. Eddie was very aware, he was astute, and he retained things. He played a lot like Chet Atkins and Joe Mathis. He could duplicate all those Mathis high speed licks note for note. In October 1954, Cochran sauntered into the American Legion Club in the LA area to watch a semi-pro band called Richard K. and the Shamrock Valley Boys. Does that make our list of... Horrible. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's bad. Yes. It's not Terry Webb and the Spiders, but no, it's not. It's not as bad as Terry Webb and the Spiders, but <laughs> or the Eternal I, I wonder, Triangle. I, in, in the history of music, I wonder how many bands were called Whoever, Whoever, and the Whatevers. <laughs> God, it is. It's there's an infinite number of who, whoever, whoever, and the whoever's. There's there's an infinite amount what? because they're still being created today. Well, one of my nominations is still the the Doug Hopkins Algebra Ranch. That was pretty. Uh, that's that's, pretty that's, that's that's heinous. 
for, I, I would say for pure badness, I, I think my leader in the clubhouse is still the eternal triangle. That's pretty awful, yeah. Although yeah. way of life was also pretty bad. That is pretty hideous, yeah. There's definitely a, a tambourine section in that band. Yeah, although t Terry Webb and the Spiders just makes me laugh. <laughs> yeah, it's laughably bad. Oh, it's goofy as hell. Uh, so the Shamrock Valley Boys, and they played, oh, this is good for those two people on our show, a repertoire of hillbilly standards. So... Hey. So that's uh... What is that because it qualifies as a hillbilly standard? Would that be like the, the old song by Stark Naked and the Car Thieves called Cousins Are Good for Practice? Uh, it's uh, it's actually Dueling Banjos and My Fat Baby. <laughs> My Fat Baby loves... And Elvira. <laughs> Gotta throw in the Oak Ridge Boys. Uh, so apparently Eddie showed up there and just walked up to the band between sets and said, hey, can I play with you guys? And they were sort of put off by this. It was informal, but at the same time, it was not really done. And they were stood sure, let Eddie play, and sure enough, he could hold his own. So he struck up a relationship with the members of the band, which included Bob Bull, who was a rhythm guitar player, and the singer named Hank Cochran. No relation. In fact, that became a running joke for them. And they even named the act they would form later, the Cochran Brothers, even though there was no relation between the two. But nonetheless, they would eventually turn that into an outfit not too far away. Hank Cochran had really come up the hard way, which he could explain by choosing to live a life outside of the limelight, as he put it. By the time he and Eddie met, he had turned professional and was working in various clubs. Hank had offered Eddie a job as his accompanying guitarist, and in January of 55, Eddie left school and became a full-time musician. He was only 16 at the time. Wow. Yep. And what were you doing at 16, Mr. Hickey? I was getting speeding tickets. Okay. And uh, for you, Mr. TJ? Um, I was um, a disc jockey. <laughs> at a 1,000-watt a AM blowtorch <laughs> that got halfway down the street after dark. <laughs> Now, here's John Sakata. Oh, nice. <laughs> I was starting the drama club in my school because we didn't have one. 16. All right. Traffic and weather together. Coming up in 10 minutes. Now, here's Sophie B. Hawkins. <laughs> See, you, you two, uh, I think we're much closer to where Eddie was. I was not close to being a full-time anything at 16. <laughs> um, but there he was. He was playing in clubs. He was getting around. And again, the joke was the Cochran brothers, because they had the same last name, yet there was no relation. The outfit consisted of Hank, Bob Bull, Eddie, of course, and a gentleman named Billy Watson to round out the section. And oftentimes, Eddie would sometimes jump in on lead guitar and do vocal harmony. So he wasn't quite a lead singer yet. He was sort of getting there. Uh, Eddie had previously not given much thought to singing, and he kind of focused on the harmonies, which were, as they described, a bit ragged, uh, while the difference in height between the two was certainly something to note, as Hank was very tall and Eddie needed to say not. Uh, nevertheless, with their practice, they came to make their presence felt on the West Coast through the country music circuit, and that seemed to be a bit more receptive to newcomers. In practice, this meant that making the rounds of the country music dance halls and Western jamborees provided regular gigs and entertainment for all the local blue-collar workers. The most prestigious of these events on the West Coast was Cliffstone's Hometown Jamboree, which was televised. It does have the word jamboree. 
<laughs> the words jamboree and orama always make me so happy jamboree which was televised on klac every sunday from the legion stage stadium in el monte el monte california i believe there's an rv park there now uh closely <laughs> followed by <laughs> town hall party which was in compton again another area surrounding los angeles so this is, I think, one of the reasons why a lot of people in L.A. specifically like to claim Eddie Cochran as their boy, because he sort of had his up-and-coming here, even though he was born a Minnesotan. Because he was straight out of Compton. There you go. Straight straight out of uh, Bell Gardens, actually, if we want to be right. technical. Cliff Stone was a shareholder at that time in the Americana, sorry, hon, Music Corporation, no, AMC. No. You will find a different word. It's a direct, it's you a direct, will find a different. It's the name. I can't change it. Americana is the dumbest. Americana and conversation piece. <laughs> Those are the two dumbest phrases in our language. I hate. You don't it. like the. Wait, you're irked by the phrase Americana? Oh, she is. I hate it. You have you have some really odd hangups. <laughs> I mean, I mean, all of us do, but. You 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 hold you have like some weird axe to grind with Phil Collins who's done nothing to you, and then <laughs> you don't additionally your 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 uh net your your unnaturally irked by the word Americana. Yeah. I also hate the phrase conversation, conversation piece. piece. I hate the word irregardless. It's not a real word. You know why? why? Because it means the same thing as regardless. Well, so does you pretentious flamm- douche. So does flammable and inflammable. Those are the same. Yes. <laughs> yeah, just, just adding letters does not make it sophisticated. Uh, so when it comes to conversation piece, I feel like if you need to buy something to seem interesting, interesting you're dumb. Yeah. Like, and if I, I and, and there's lots of there's lots of BS like corporate phrases that I hate. Oh, like let's oh. put a pin in this. I, that's yeah. It. Corp- the the corporate corporatist BS drives me insane. So, it's just dripping with HR mandated. Passive like, aggressive. Yeah. Passive. Yes. So passive aggressive. Yeah. So yeah. back to Cliff Stone, who was a shareholder in the Americana Music Corporation. Uh, the Americana Music Corporation was a booking agency actually run by a name some of you may know, Steve Stebbins, who was a country promoter specifically on the West Coast. So his entire focus was California and the western seaboard and the country music scene there other the, which is which is so funny because you don't you don't think of california as being a country music mecca it, but then <laughs> but then you also think well the bakersfield sound yeah right buck owens and oh the palace yeah yes it's here in california until he passed i mean i'm sure it's still there but um some of these singers included facts like eddie kirk tennessee ernie ford merle travis and many others were part of that agency to help round out California's country music circuit. The Cochran brothers were added to the books for the AMC in 1955 in April, at which point there was a dramatic improvement in the way they were viewed. They put in appearances in both Town Hall Party, which we mentioned was one of the shows that followed Hometown Jamboree. Uh, They also appeared on Country Barn Dance, which just sounds awesome. Uh, and then a, <laughs> here's here's my personal favorite, uh, a more down market affair held in the 1,000 capacity Jubilee Ballroom yeah. in West El Monte. Stebbins arranged an immediate audition with EKKO Records, one of the dozens of tiny independent labels in Los Angeles. It was owned by Ed Bloodworth and two other independent partners. 
Unable to sign up any big names, it usually settled for the smaller acts. So some band like the Cochrans would actually be a really good fit for them. Coming up, not too big, sort of that perfect Goldilocks kind of fit there. EKKO and A&R man Charles Red Matthews, his nickname was Red, was based in Memphis, where the company had its main office and would make periodic recording trips to California. Assuming a managerial role as best he could, even though he wasn't based there, Matthews put a lot of stock in the Cochrans and became sort of their de facto manager within AMC. So now they had official representation. By May of 1955, he produced four tracks by the Cochran brothers at the famed and still there Sunset Record Studio in Hollywood. Which oh, wow. Just down the street from my office, actually. So, uh, so, so at this point, we're talking what er, early fifties? This is fifty-five, May of fifty-five. Okay, so mid fifties, but I mean, so but that's still there. Oh, it's still there. Sounds like oh wow, okay, it's still there. Cool. yeah, cool. It's an institution. So they recorded some tracks, and they were songs that were popularized actually by the great Hank Williams, uh, such as "Mr. Fiddle" and Two Blue Singing Stars," which rounded out their single debut. Vocally, Hank is stronger on these recordings, but it's clear that Eddie was a strong backup player and his guitar style is really what got him noticed because he had kind of that blend of country and rock, which is, those of you who know Eddie Cochran can see where this is going. In autumn of that year, Hank and Eddie were booked to appear on the Big D Jamboree. Ooh, we just got all kinds of jamborees. <laughs> In Dallas. They uh, called it the Big, okay. They the called it the big D. D without a hint of irony. Yeah, exactly. The big D jamboree. Yeah, and Eddie said, yeah, yeah was, I'm going to play at the big D. Oh, he <laughs> that was actually in Dallas, Texas, uh, locally broadcast on KRLD. And it was actually up there as far as ratings go with Nashville's Opry. So they would oh, wow. all, yeah, they had a big draw. And it was held every weekend in what was at that time the Dallas Sporatorium. And it was usually used to host wrestling contests during the week, and they'd convert it to a concert venue on the weekends. Wow. So so, uh, so apparently, radio listeners like a big D. They love a big D and a jamboree. So you get them both. Um, you may realize at this time period, there was another name starting to surface. A guy named Elvis Presley. Might have heard of him. Maybe something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was some truck driver, wasn't he? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Uh, Elvis was just making his, you know, making the scene at this point, and he had an interesting fusion of country and R&B and pop that was becoming very popular. And it was interesting that Hank and Eddie actually arrived in Dallas the next week after Elvis had appeared on the Big D. So Elvis was there first, and they were quick to follow. Now, oftentimes, Elvis will be painted as sort of a contemporary of Eddie Cochran's. And while I think that's fair, I think that Eddie had a few stark differences, which we'll get into. Uh, the pandemonium which surrounded Elvis' appearances was a phenomenon in country music, and the Cochrans listened as the security told them exactly what had happened to them as they were torn apart by the fans as they tried to protect Elvis. Hank, who had heard some of Elvis's son records on the radio, had said, he and Eddie knew right then that this new stuff was about to happen. And again, it helped that Eddie was ridiculously good looking. He was still a teenager, but he looked and carried himself like a much more mature individual. A music producer by the name of Marty Wilde in Britain was later quoted as saying, when I met him in person, he looked like all the pictures only better. He didn't have one spot on his face and his hair was absolutely in place, which he also slicked back similar to Elvis. 
I mean, if it works. If it works, yeah. So I think what this is pointing out is Eddie is clearly steering into the wind. You have a guy like Elvis who's making this, again, pop sound, very handsome. And there's Eddie right behind him offering something very similar. The Cochrans traveled east through Texarkana and on to Memphis, where EKKO had a small office. Their unscheduled trip, however, left the Cochrane Act virtually broke. The only way they made it back to California was by hitchhiking and by Eddie selling his amp to get some money together. Which is actually really interesting because for some reason, I was listening to a special on hitchhiking. Mm -hmm. Is that a thing I did? Did you hitchhike? Holy crap. Not I that I know. not feeling good. <laughs> Uh, but they were saying that in the in the 40s, hitchhiking was a thing, but it was dipped. the 60s. Well, no, no, no. It's, it, it was in the, the 20s and 30s. It was a thing because not not everyone had cars and people had to get to places. So sometimes they couldn't afford bus fare mm -hmm. so that they would, or train fares. So they would hitch with, you know, you know, the back roads of whatever town they're coming from in the 20s and 30s. And in the 40s, it was more of like a wartime thing. Like mm. you'd be released off your bases and not have a ride. And then it dipped in the 50s and then it had a resurgence in the 60s and the 70s. That's where so, I picture it. Yeah. 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 I mean, like we the, kind of equate that. Oh, you know what? I was, what? It was, I was listening to Time Suck and it was about a, a guy who would, uh, he would kill hitchhikers. Yeah. That's what it was. So we're going to have to take a short break for our sponsors, and we will be right back. And we are back. Let's get back to Eddie Cochran. So Eddie hitchhikes back to L.A. He's hanging out back at the music shop, and lo and behold, in October of 55, he's introduced to Jerry Capehart. Jerry Capehart was a songwriter and a manager who, and this is self-proclaimed, had no singing voice. So he was looking for someone who could demo his songs. Eddie said that he and Hank would be happy to do it. And so he introduced Capehart to Hank and the two of them went in to put down some tracks. May I interject and ask something? Yes. Does Capehart end up actually being relatively famous? Because like, his name is familiar. Uh, he's, I mean, he basically built Eddie Cochran's career. I don't, okay. I don't have anything beyond that. Okay. Uh, the script we have focuses basically on Eddie. So I, I'm not sure he could have moved on to become a very... A prominent music man. I just wonder if he ended up being like a prominent songwriter or, or something, because I, I think I've actually heard the guy's name. Just Perhaps. Um, yeah. I, I know he was instrumental in, in Eddie Cochran's life. Beyond that, okay. it's entirely possible. So they put down a few tracks, and really nothing comes of it, but during this time, they're getting some time in the studio, and this is where Eddie gets a chance to sort of play a little bit and do the things that he becomes known for doing in the studio. You know, one of these is dubbing and multi-track recording. In October, EKKO issues a second single called Guilty Conscience, which had mediocre reception. Again, Red Matthews did a lot of time promoting it, but he was mostly in Memphis, so he didn't really have a lot of time to focus on the boys. So long story short, they have a contract with EKKO, at least for another record. And in November of 1955, they run into an entrepreneur named John Dolphin, who had a thriving record industry in the heart of the black community in LA, which is focused around Compton and South Central LA. Dolphin was notable for having DJ named Huggy Boy broadcasting from a booth in his record shop window. 
Dolphin also operated two R&B labels out of his shop and made his own master recordings in a small studio on the premises. So long story short, Capehart could work with Dolphin to get some of these tracks cut and they could sort of ease their way out of EKKO's contract. So Capehart pitches Dolphin the idea of cutting some more, quote, hillbilly sounds, end quote, and with the promise of a record deal as soon as they're able to do it. So Thank Dolphin, God there weren't internet reviews back then. Right, yeah. So Dolphin's name would, fe- would frequently appear as a writer of some of these songs. He was really a producer. And they were backed by four Black musicians. So it was Hank, Eddie, and four musicians selected by Dolphin, who would record in Chris- by Christmas of 1955, Rollin' and Walkin' Stick Boogie, which they were able to put out. In early 1956, the Cochran brothers go on the road towards San Francisco, Oregon, and Washington. KOVR TV in Stockton, California had recently introduced a TV show called The California Hayride. That sounds a common theme here. Oh, Hayrides, <laughs> Jubilees, Jamborees. We've got everything happening out there. Yeah. <laughs> Two hillbillies on the show are loving it. Yeah. Uh, the, vis- <laughs> the visiting Cochrans were invited to join the resident cast of performers, which prompted them to make a, the Bay Area sort of their stomping grounds during the 19 during 1956 and actually take up residence in napa california thanks to tv appearances the conferences enjoyed a busier work schedule and by march 10th of 1956 they had appeared with their manager jerry capehart on hollywood jubilee so yet another jubilee when i think when i hear the word hollywood i don't i don't think jubilees jamborees hayrides um yeah not what you think we haven't gotten a good hoedown yet though if hey, gosh, we got we need a hoedown <laughs> and a uh, cornhole in <laughs> uh, April of 1956. Cape Hart and <coughs> go into Gold Star Studios to make demos for a new batch of songs written for again AMC. Of the half dozen or so, a few stand out. Uh, one is Pink Peg Slacks, which is one of Eddie Cochran's earlier pieces. Another is the Rockabilly Classic that we are going to get to in just a moment. Thank God. I know, we got a song. We've got a song. Yeah. So one of the demos that came out of this was called Skinny Jim, which was actually released as a B-side in 1956. This was Eddie's first solo recording, and it was released on the Crest label. And that's the first one I'm going to share with you to give you a taste of. Mr. Eddie Cochran, and what he was capable little, of. Little known fact, this debuted on a Fandango. Yeah. Or a, I think that's the last one. Well, I think we've covered all the bases now. Or Orama would be the other one. Yes. We need an Orama. So this recording comes to you from July of 1956. This is Eddie's first real breakout solo piece, Skinny Jim. Well, I'm no god with the deep bone and the skin. And the raving about Skinny Jim, Skinny Jim. Man, Skinny Jim. Oh, yes, 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 all the gals love you on Skinny Jim. Well, I went to a party and met Skinny Jim. My baby came with me, but you left with him. Skinny Jim. Ooh, man, Skinny Jim. Mm, yes, 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 all the gals love you on Skinny Jim. Well, old Jim got charm, he got class. All the women love him more. Oh, yeah, 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 Skinny Jim. Ooh, man. Oh, yes, 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 all the 
thoughts we're going to open it up to the group to see what you what you think it um it sounds like it's reminiscent of a lot of early rock and roll i could hear a little buddy holly in there maybe okay here's bob, a, question, a little bit of a bill haley vibe mm. did you did you get the feeling that you were listening to a song from the movie crybaby how does it feel to it yeah i would have to have seen crybaby didn't know what you're talking about but um what was interesting to me is, again, Eddie Cochran is considered sort of this contemporary of Elvis Presley. I feel like Elvis had a very smooth and silky voice. Eddie's got some roughness to it. Yeah. yeah. A grit to it. You know? And a little sharper. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this was really a chance for Eddie to break out. And he was gaining reputation not only as a singer-songwriter, but as a versatile guitar player. So he was actually picking up a lot of session work with a lot of different musicians that were big at that time. Capehart was very aware that every major record label was searching for the next Elvis. So he took these recordings over to Liberty Records. Liberty was formed in 1955 by Al Bennett and Cy Warnaker. And it had made rapid strides when a singer named Julie London cut a massive hit with them called Crimea River. I don't know if you know that one. But needless to say, they needed someone who was going to get him into that Elvis scene, which was that rock and roll sort of thing. So it seemed that Eddie would be the perfect fit. So sure enough, Capehart gets him over to Liberty Records, and they arrange for him to have a cameo in a movie to help you know, boost his career and credibility. So in 1956, Eddie appears opposite Jane Mansfield in The Girl Can't Help It. He actually makes a cameo, so he's playing himself, uh, with one of his famed songs, 20 Flight Rock, which actually not be released for another year in 1957. Now, Jane, now Jane Mansfield, huge movie star. Absolutely. Where he actually played a character, not just a cameo. So uh, it, was, it was actually a character, not Captain Geach in the Shrimp Shack Shooters? Regretfully, it was not, no. <laughs> uh, the summer of 1957, Liberty Records issued Cochran's only studio album, Singing to My Baby. Again, there are singles that are released, and there is a posthumous album, but this is the only album cut during his lifetime. Because now the, the 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 idea of an album is still kind of a new thing at this point, right? Or or it's at least most people just put out like a lot of they would put out singles. Correct. The the the, the idea of a cohesive album was not something that people jumped on really early. Correct. I mean there 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 were some, but they weren't like super common at the time, I don't think. Yes. Yeah, it was more common, like you said, put out the singles, because I think also the record company wouldn't be on the hook for a whole album, so. Right. There were many different songs on this album. Some of them were more in the rock vein, and some of them were not. The one I'm going to share with you is one of his most notable songs. 
This one comes from 1957 Singing to My Baby, and it is Sitting in the Balcony. I'm just a sitting in the balcony. Just a watching the moon. Or maybe it's a symphony. The same the symbols and the tune just sitting in the back on the very last row. I'll hold your hand and I'll kiss you too. But the future's over, but we're not in the back. It's a bit of a change up from a, a very from, much a change up yeah. from, from what we heard early and, and, and from what I know of him to come. Exactly. Uh, you know, I really do love this because there was that there. It seems like there's three different genres kind of fighting it out in his vocal stylings. And it's really cool. And to see what comes about from him in just a, a short while here. It's really interesting like you're hearing the nexus of the hillbilly the hillbilly the <laughs> rockabilly genre <laughs> yeah but but scary because you said that you know what's to come this is 1957 so eddie's got three more years on the clock i was gonna say we're, we're getting yeah. pretty close to the end unfortunately like, yeah regretfully yeah uh, i mean this was the first time people saw him as more than oh it's just an attractive kid who can sing they said wait a minute you know he's got talent he can play it was his real first hit in 1957. There were other notable songs that sort of came out of this uh, that were going to actually be more highlighted in the coming year, which were actually written not only by Capehart, but by Eddie's then steady girlfriend, Sharon Sheely, who was also a songwriter. Now, the interesting thing about Sharon Sheely is there is, according to some accounts, an understanding that they were going to get married. This didn't happen, and there was never a formal proposal, but that was sort of in the cards, at least right. in the interviews I've, I've seen. Uh, Sitting in the Balcony was the perfect teen ballad for that time, and it really secured Eddie's place on the charts, which, by the way, this song had two versions. Uh, there was the original version, and then there was a version that Cochran did, 
which had more of the studio elements to it, like the echo and whatnot. So you had kind of a drier cut, and then you had more of what you heard here. Both versions got to the top 100, the hot 100, in March of 1957. Cochran's went as high as 18. So it was clearly the more successful, commercially speaking. The top, the top 20 hit. Yeah, yeah top, top 20 hit, yeah. It might have made the top 10, but there were both versions on the charts. So they kind of competed against each other. So which... kind of a how will I live situation going on. Oh, that's a great example. Yeah. I never thought of that. Wow. Huh. I didn't put that together. Wow. What did I just miss? Oh, the, the, he had two songs in the Hot 100, and they kind of made it so neither one could climb that high. And then TJ pointed out that was How Do I Live by Trisha Yearwood, right? Yeah, and Leanne Rhymes at the same time. Or or, or I want to say that um, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers had a single out that was at the same time as Tom and Stevie Nicks doing Don't Stop Dragging My Heart Around. Oh, wow. Yeah. Despite all this success, though, Cochran had lacked faith in his abilities and his playing, and he was constantly criticizing himself. He said... Hearing the playbacks after my first recording when I cut Sit in the Balcony, I didn't like it at all. But it went on to sell a million copies, and I was the most surprised of all. That was a quote from Eddie Cochran. But yeah, over a million copies. It's incredible. Wow. And, uh, and I'm thinking you sell a million records in 1950. What, where are we at? Six, seven? 57, yeah. Wow, yeah. Which is crazy. Huge hit. Yeah, massive. So he goes on tour, as most musicians do, following a successful album. In April, he spent a week at the Mastbaum Theater in Philadelphia on a package deal with Al Hibbler, Nappy Brown, George Hamilton IV, which is a great name, great. and Gene Vincent. It was there that Eddie met Gene for the first time. In August, Capehart took Eddie on a promotional tour across the Midwest and on through the eastern states. In the 1950s, it was an established practice for artists writing on a hit to make stops to meet the DJs and thank them for their support. So this was kind of a radio tour following mm -hmm. the success of Sitting in the Balcony. Most of Cochran's recording sessions took place at the Gold Star Studios, which is also located in California at the famed corner of Santa Monica and Vine. You know where that is. I think there's like a Trader Joe's there now, but that's fine. 1956 was a, a small studio housed in a one-story shop with a very popular demo studio with pre-rock songwriters of the day. When the hosiery shop next door went out of business, Gold Star expanded by taking over the premises and constructing a larger A studio with an echo chamber. And that was to help get the sound that, you know, Eddie then had on his record. He also recorded another fine rocker titled Pretty Girl, co-written by Jerry Capehart, which stayed in the can for a couple months before finally being released as a B-side. Numerous takes of this number were made in a variety of tempos and shading before it was finally discarded. Womp womp. But it did resurface on a variety of European releases in the 60s. So before we get to that, I think it's important to note this fun fact. TJ, would you give me the... Fun fact! There it is. In June of 1957, a young man was meeting the leader of a band called The Quarrymen. The band was headed by John Lennon in Liverpool. And the young man who was auditioning was Sir Paul McCartney. It was allegedly McCartney that taught Lennon how to play Eddie Cochran's 20 Flight Rock in that time. So they were playing that song together. Oh, wow. It gave McCartney traction to then obviously played with the Quarrymen, which then became the Beatles. I mean, so you, you basically have Eddie Cochran to thank 
for forming the Beatles. Helping form the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, suffice to say, this is a song that the Beatles would eventually play, and it was played clearly with the Quarrymen. In 1981, the Rolling Stones actually played 20 Flight Rock as one of their few covers while they toured the U.S., and it is that next song that I'm going to play with you, for you today. I feel like it would be remiss if I did not. This one comes from originally the film The Girl Can't Help It. It was released as a single for the movie, but it then came out on the album later. This is Eddie Cochran's 20 Flight Rock. Saturday night, a hole alone where I can hold her tight, but she lives on the 20th of all town. The elevators are broken down, so I walk one, two, five, three, five, four, five, six, seven, five, eight, five, more. Up on the cliff, I'm suddenly dragged into the hole. I'm ready to slap, get to the top. I'm too tired to run. Well, she called me up on the telephone, said, Come on over, honey, I'm all alone. I said, Baby, you're mighty sweet. But I'm in better with the aching feet. This went on for a couple of days, but I couldn't stay away. So I walked one, two, five, two, five, four, five, six, seven, five, eight, five, more. I'm on the cliff, I'm starting to drag. Fifteen to four, I'm ready to sag. Get to the top, I'm too tired to run. For repairs, so let's fix time of using the stairs. Hope for her before it's rain. I love my baby too much to wait. All this climbing is getting me down. I find my corpse draped over a rail, but I climb one, two, five, three, five, four, five, six, seven, five, eight, five more. I'm on the cliff, I'm starting to drag. Fifteen to four, I'm ready to sag. Get to the top, I'm too tired to rock. All right, so what, what was your thought on that 20 flight rock, LD? You said you okay, like so uh, a couple of things. Okay, first of all, that sounded a lot more like Elvis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sounded like the voice was a little deeper, and there was that kind of little shuffle that, that you heard in a lot of early Elvis songs, mm -hmm. pre-Army pre Elvis, I guess. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is, isn't it strange what songs end up being inspirations? Because that's not a song I was really familiar with, to be honest with you. Yeah, me neither. Um, it's it's not one that seems to be you know revered in the rock canon. Yet you're sitting there saying like, well, the Stones played it, and you know, Paul McCartney had to play that to get into the Beatles or the Quarrymen <laughs> or whatever. And and it's it's just weird that you know, there are a couple of songs like that or or, or mm -hmm. acts like that. We have an upcoming episode. I'm not going to tip my hat on it, but they were uh, uh, one of the most well known, and you can probably guess who I'm talking about. One of the best known rock guitarists in the history of. Yep. Rock guitar, mm -hmm. and he and his brother who plays drums, which I'm really giving it away now. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, tremendously influenced by the first album by Montrose. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, and uh, by and that the a song on that on the first Montrose album called Rock Candy is considered kind of a classic. Although most people probably could not pick it out of a lineup. There's only a reason that I know that, and I can't reveal it because it will completely tip our hand here. <laughs> yes, but but there's that, and then you think about uh, like uh, the Velvet Underground, mm -hmm. who whose whose first album sold something like ten thousand copies. Yep. 
yeah. but, but somehow it, it influenced like all these musicians. Same deal. It, it, it kind of blows my mind. A, that I've never heard that because I mean, it's a good song and I liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very, it sounds very Elvisy, but that the Stones played that as one of the only covers that they chose to put in their set list when they toured America. Right. And that, and, and that John Lennon looked at Paul McCartney and said, so uh, can you play that Eddie Cochran song? <laughs> I love, I actually, I, I truly did love that song. It, it really embodies a, a spirit and a time that seemed like it was so much better than it is now. <laughs> and so, I think a lot of times are better than they are now. Yes. So, uh, but I do keep going back to the idea of the, the, the crybaby sound and uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. The Crybaby Cry was a movie starring Johnny Depp, and it was about a a rockabilly singer who, you know, falls in love with more of like a socialite princess. And there are these these songs in the film. I'd I'd go as far as to say is it's a musical, but it I think that actually speaks to what that sound was. It was a solid sound. Yeah was a good sound and it was something that was fresh and new and you can finally hear where he's landing yeah but it's a, it's a really good song and i, I really like really it. good song yeah it was and this is where you can already you pointed to it earlier that cochran is gaining traction in britain which is going to be a very important part of the story to come uh so we are now into 1958 and cochran releases his first single at that time which is Jenny, Jenny, Jenny. Uh, the winter of that year was one of the most exciting and competitive seasons for new singles, with hundreds being issued every single week. It would take more than honest-to-goodness rockers such as Jenny, Jenny, Jenny to reestablish Cochran, although the record did sufficient business to scrape the number 94 slot for one week in March. He followed up with a song called Teresa, which was a bit graceful and melodic, and it was a B-side, but none of these really pushed him forward. So he's kind of hitting a plateau. That's going to break soon. And that's with the song that we all know, June of 1958, Summertime Blues. And that didn't stay a B-side for very long, although it was cut as one. That, that is, that's amazing. I know, isn't it? Uh, that, mostly- that, that, that what ended up being one of the, a rockabilly classic, a rock and roll uh-huh. classic, his most notable song Mm -hmm. most well-known song was put out as a b-side was a b-side and was considered a quote sleeper and it entered the hot 100 two months after it came out but it climbed to number eight when it did so there was a bit of a delayed reaction on that one yeah I'm, i'm i'm amazed that that song only got to number eight yeah isn't that crazy yeah and it was around that time that he also cut another song that I think is probably his second most well-known, which is Come On Everybody, which made it right. up to 35. However, that one got up to number six in the UK, which is sort of what spawns this movement to move, to, to do a sort of preemptive British invasion here. It, it Both of those songs basically launched Cochrane back into the spotlight and started pushing him and, and, I, and I do find it interesting that he that even, he's even it's an his stuff is an even bigger hit in the UK than it is oh, yeah. stateside. It's going bananas at this point, which, which, which was kind of the case with a lot of American rockabilly and blues artists. Because you know, we did an episode on Robert Johnson a couple of months ago, where I mean he had been dead and buried and almost unknown in America, 
and became like a breakout hit in Britain yeah. 30 years after he, 20, 30 years after he died, influencing Robert Plant and a, and a number of other, you know, rock musicians. He's a regular old David Hasselhoff. <laughs> yep. In 19- Germans love David Hasselhoff. That they do. And he's like, a, he doesn't pay for a beer over there. It's crazy. So come on, everybody, and Summertime Blues launch Cochran to viable pop status yet again. In 1958, he's touring in New York with his then-girlfriend, Sharon Sheely, and he was actually booked to appear at the Lowe's State Theater in a package show that was promoted by DJ Alan Freed, a name that we know. I think Alan Freed is... Wow. Yeah. Credit for discovering rock, isn't that correct? Uh, he is actually credited for coining the term rock and roll. That's what is. He was a wow. DJ, and he actually, I think, got hooked into the payola, the, the payola scandal. Mm-hmm. When we were doing, like, series, like, when we were bouncing a series ideas, uh, DJs was one of them. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I'd like to revisit that idea because... Yeah, because you could do an entire episode on me, except I'm not dead. <laughs> I can make a rain. But, I, I, but clearly, clearly so influential. You want that in the recording? <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like hearsay evidence. (laughs) Just because I said it out loud doesn't mean I'm actually going to kill my brother. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) uh, so part of Merry Merry Christmas, Travis. (laughs) This also gives you an idea of sort of the gravity that surrounded Eddie Cochran. He had a New Year's Eve party that year in which Buddy Holly was in attendance with the crickets. Oh, wow. Yep. Yeah. Uh, And what, what, what year are we in now? This is 1958 going into 59. Oh, so we're 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 near the end of both of their lives. Oh yeah, we're very close. We're we're, we're right on the crest of but I wonder is it the crickets proper or is it the touring crickets? Actually, this is the crickets proper, proper, yeah, crickets right proper. Now. Okay, so this would not have been Wayland. Correct. Mm, yeah. Okay, all right. Correct. Uh, his bass player, Connie Smith, who remember had basically been with him since his high school days, which is right. not all that long if you consider how old Eddie actually is at this point. Uh, he put together a semi-permanent band that they called the Kelly Four, and they played on most of his 1959 sessions, including Weekend and his version of Ray Charles' Hallelujah, I Love Her So, which they cut. In between, he cut Something Else, which was another single, and a re-release of Summertime Blues. Sharon Sheely co-wrote the song with Eddie's brother, Bob, which was his youngest brother. Um, sorry, first oldest brother. He was the youngest before Eddie, which reached number 58 on the charts in the summer of 59 and helped keep Eddie being prominent throughout that year. And as we know, 1959 was not a good year for music. Uh-huh. Sure enough, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper were all killed in a plane crash. And Cochran knew all of them. In, the in a plane, in a, in a plane crash that, and it would have been almost a footnote at the time, mm-hmm. but that 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 was this close to including Waylon Jennings. He was almost on the plane, wasn't he? Yes, he he gave his seat to Big Bopper. Oh, that's terrifying. You hear so many of those stories. Anyway, there was a DJ named Tommy D who wrote the song that I'm going to share with you. It was written as a tribute, and Eddie ultimately performed it. This is going to be a totally different take. And this is a song that I just, I listened to it a few times. And I said, well, I got to include this. This was written in honor of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper from 1959. Here's Eddie Cochran with Three Stars. Look up in the sky 
song from you could make the coldest heart melt. Well, you're singing for God now in his chorus in the sky. Buddy Holly, I'll always remember you with tears in my eyes. Gee, we're gonna miss you. Everybody sends her love. I see a stout man, the big bopper is your name. God called you to heaven, maybe for, for new fortune and, and fame. Keep wearing that big Stetson hat and ramble up to the mic. And don't forget those wonderful words. You know what I like. After a, a change of pace, there. Oh, that was depressing. That yeah. was so. It was depressing. If you guys, gosh, I, w- I wonder, did anybody else think to write a song about the plane crash that killed Buddy Holly? Oh, I wonder. I, I, I gotta Google it. You know what? You know what? To find the answer to that out, you should go back and listen to our series on the day the music died. <laughs> yeah. Right here. But, but and, and I'm, I'll say that tongue in cheek. Uh, that it's funny that that song isn't more well-known necessarily 
Because again, that's not one I was super familiar with. Yeah, me neither. No. Yeah, and it's and it's a really good song. It's a much more. It's a very downbeat, sad. Of course, it's hard. It's <laughs> it's hard to offer up a you know a, a feel good ditty about three people dying in a plane crash. Right. But, yeah. So that needless to say, he was very jarring for Eddie. It actually he became depressed. And 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 again, he knew all three people. It's not just that three, they inspired yeah. him. I mean, he he actually was he he knew all three of the people. Oh yeah. Yeah. And he actually, it was said that those close to him, Eddie would say that he was having dreams about his own death at this point. How often does that happen? How often? Okay, LD, you, you, you're you're the one that started this podcast, and then you you know you added the two hillbillies earlier this year. But how often has that come up? I know that people have premonitions of some kind of their own demise, or that they're they have relatives who fear that something horrible is going to happen. Because it seems like this comes up a lot. Yeah, well, Hendrix. it happened. It happened with Hendrix. It happened with uh, John Bonham. John Bonham, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yep. It yeah. happened with uh, two of the three members of the day that the music died. I, I was going to say because Buddy Buddy Holly foretold and, his own early demise. And Richie Valens as well. Yeah. Um, it's happened. Uh, it happens a lot, and you know, being doing like the paranormal stuff that I do on the side. I I'm curious if we're getting a peek at the other side when that happens. Like, yeah, not to get too uh, higgledy piggledy or whatever, woo woody woo, but it's if I'm wondering if it's if you could see yourself closer to death when you're closer to death. Yeah, I wonder if you start getting those peaks because it happens way more than I would have thought before before we started this podcast. This podcast has been going for almost two years and. Wow. More often than not, people have at least some sort of inkling that it's going to happen. Like, yeah, you know, like even Christina Grimmie, some her mom said that she didn't want a crazed fan to kill her daughter. Yeah, you know, and that's not her. That's not Christina saying it, but it's a member of her family saying something very prophetic. Yeah. So it's weird. It's something very strange. Because Buddy Holly, who Eddie Cochran knew and I guess was friends with, yeah. Was so was was restless, and he would constantly tell people like, "I don't have, I don't have long. I can't wait." So creepy, right? Because when he married uh, Maria, was that her name? Yeah. Didn't he tell her like, "I like, well, no, you like, I need an answer now because I don't, I don't have time. I don't have long. I got to know now." Wow. Yeah. I and then Richie Valens, of course, had I think actually had. Nightmares. Did he not have premonitions of dying in a plane crash? Yeah, he'd actually have nightmares about it. Yeah. So this, I mean, that's this. It's all. It's it's. It's bizarre how often this comes up. It, it does, yeah. Yeah. And Eddie's no exception here. Again, he would have these, he'd tell people that he would have these dreams about dying, and it's just incredibly eerie. Uh, he was also working again as a backup musician, and he was actually a producer. Uh, you'll love this one. In 1959, he played the lead guitar for Skeets McDonald at the <laughs> recording for You Ought to See Grandma Rock and Heartbreaking Mama. <laughs> I thought we needed that. Skeets McDonald, everybody. Oh, Skeets. Now you got to watch oh, it. And he was still working with Gene Vincent at this time, which remember he had met in 1958. And he had contributed. Uh, Gene played bass. Uh, actually, I'm sorry. Gene lended his voice to Summertime Blues. And there were recordings that they did together that were released on a Gene Vincent album in 1959. In April of 59, Cross the Pond here, there was a show in Britain called Oh Boy with the director Jack Good. 
who had revolutionized television pop in the 50s, announcing that he was seeking to recruit top-line American stars for the act. He was clearly frustrated by the limited selection of British acts that were available to him. That's kind of funny. Uh, this is the 50s. And he longed to feature the real American McCoy, as he called it. But unfortunately, all these, quote, hot American acts were too busy cashing on their own territory, they wouldn't consider coming to England. After an eight-month run, Oh Boy was actually superseded by a new Jack Good TV pop show called Boy Meets Girl. Same director. So Jack Good, at the behest, uh, at Jack's behest, is searching for more American acts, and lo and behold, he finds out about Eddie Cochran, Gene Vincent, and Ronnie Hawkins, who they would be available at the end of 1959. Again, this is post-plane crash. Eddie's sort of on the fence about touring, and... Vincent finally decides they're going to go through with it, and they're confirmed to appear on Boy Meets Girl in December of 1959. Vincent was quite unprepared for the reception that awaited him when he arrived in Heathrow Airport on December 5th, 1959, and he had, as they said, all the comic overtones of a blind date. <laughs> Capitol Records had gone to some great lengths to take commercial advantage of the impending visit. An early attempt of pop hype They'd even sponsored the formation of a nominal fan club to bolster interest in the star on the morning of their arrival with a coachload of fans driven to the airport at EMI's expense. So they shuttled in fans, which I think is funny. Uh, Gene Vincent went forward and met Jack Good. And at this point, let's just say Gene Vincent was a bit, shall we say, unkempt, and we'll leave it at that. Whereas... Eddie Cochran was the exact opposite. Cochran was very dapper in his you know, waistcoats and his neatly groomed hair. Um, so they would actually have to have a whole new overchange of wardrobe for Gene Vincent, where he would basically discard all his old clothes. And they gave him an old leather suit and a set of gauntlets, apparently, uh, topped off with silver medallions. Vincent's initial 12-day tour proved to be so successful that fresh bookings were quickly, quickly announced surrounding this known as the Gene Vincent Show. It was an 11-week nationwide tour in which Gene would feature Eddie Cochran, who would appear on the show, and who would return uh, to Britain on January 10th. Cochran had recently completed a tour of the American Midwest and managed to squeeze in recording sessions at the studio before his visit. Uh, this is when three titles came out, which were Cut Across Shortly, Cherished Memories, and Three Steps to Heaven, the final of which would not be released until after Cochrane's death. Oh, Cochran, wow. Cochran makes his way to London one month after Gene Vincent on January 10th and was given a similar reception at the Albert Embankment headquarters of Decca Records. Uh, while Vincent continued his concert schedule, Cochran was in Manchester rehearsing for two appearances on Boy Meets Girl, which were transmitted on the 16th and 23rd of that month. Cochrane and Vincent played their first show together at the Gasmount Ipswich on January 24th, before taking a three-day break to rehearse with the British backing group, the Wildcats, who were loaned to them by, we quoted him earlier, Marty Wild. See, I came full circle there. Yeah. Look what I did. I'm so happy with that. So the big moment had arrived, and it was time to hear from the USA, Eddie Cochran with Come On Everybody. And that's the song that I'm going to share with you right now. This is perhaps his second most famous song. And this is one I had actually heard, but didn't immediately associate it with Eddie Cochran. Here's Eddie Cochran with Come On Everybody. One, two, one, two.
Come on, everybody. It's a good song. It is. Good. Now, you, you can actually kind of see him perfecting what he started. And yeah. what half the picture is just the wall of screaming sound that came out the moment he stepped on stage. That is obviously absent to this recording. But here walks Eddie Cochran with his white shirt, his jeans, the sport coat, and he's got the brown guitar, and the crowd is just going absolutely bananas. Um, it's an utterly electric performance, and this was a song that he would continue to record while on this tour. So he did it for Boy Meets Girl, but he also did performances at the Manchester Hippodrome. They played several venues in and around England, including uh, Wembley, they actually played. Yay. Yeah. Uh, the oh, wow. closed with a second appearance of Boy Meets Girl, followed by a series of one-week engagements in Leeds, Birmingham, Liverpool, Newcastle and Manchester, which would take us all the way up to the fateful month of April, 1960. Another young man had seen Eddie while he was playing on tour in Liverpool, and he even acquired an important piece of memorabilia. Here's the quote. In 1999, I worked on a radio series for the BBC World Service with Paul McCartney. Looking back at his early rock and roll years, Paul recalled the then unknown Beatles touring Scotland backing Johnny Gentle in 1960. Eddie had given Johnny Gentle his stage shirt after a Bristol show, and the following week of pestering by the young Beatle, Johnny eventually passed it to me, George Harrison. Huh. Yep. My favorite wow. Beatle, George Harrison. This groundbreaking tour took place during a transitionary period in British pop music. As the rock and roll era was drawing to a close with some such hits as Save the Last Dance for Me, which were coming out, it was the arrival of a more sophisticated production technique and the emergence of sort of A&R men, arrangers, and the inspirational force behind pop music. So again, Eddie has interacted with three out of four Beatles at this point. Which is amazing. Which is incredible. The tour's continued success actually prompted further arrangements and concerts in Britain. Uh, so they had to make allowances with basically Eddie's work visa so he could do this. He was actually scheduled to return to the States on Sunday, April 17th for recording session. So he had to move some things around. Uh, Cochran and Vincent's work permitted them to stay on an extended visa and play one more week, which included a show at the Hippodrome in Bristol on April 11th. Now, are you familiar with the Hippodrome? No. It's actually a very well-known concert venue in Britain. In fact, 13 years later, November of 1973, the Hippodrome welcomed none other than Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Yes! And there it is, ladies and gentlemen, our federally mandated Manfred Mann's Earth Band reference of the podcast. There it is. <laughs> there we go. The movie's oh. 
And that's our, that's our one. Woo! <laughs> Woo! All right. High five, everybody. Yeah, well done. Good job. So, Good job. Uh, Eddie Cochran and Gene Vincent travel back to Bristol. They, they check into the largest hotel, the Royale. Cochran was actually quite depressed at this point. He was missing home. And according to Gene Vincent, he had actually started drinking more than usual. They were joined in Bristol three days later by Sharon Sheely. And again, even she couldn't seem to sort of bring Eddie about. They were still doing their shows, but Cochran seemed to have lost all his enthusiasm. He wanted to go home and he was just tired. That's it. So this is so this is so funny because he's getting what you you think musicians want. Why you you're such a big hit, we'd like you to stay longer. Yeah. And he's right? like, no. I mean, this is what he's getting he's getting the attention. He's getting the crowds. Yep. He's I don't know if he's homesick or what, but that's that's interesting that you, you know he's this is making him miserable. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, the tour manager uh, Eddie was thrilled when the tour manager arrived with two plane tickets to the singer's hotel room on the last morning of their tour. Cochran ripped open the envelopes. He was sitting on his bed at the time and said, "Look at these boys, real genuine tickets to the USA." So there's a few things logistically you've got to wrap your head around to understand what happens next. So. They are, again, playing at this time with the aforementioned Johnny Gentle in Bristol, which if you know where Bristol is and you know where Heathrow Airport is, they're not exactly close. This is not a convenient ride. Also, with all of this going on in the area, there are some limited resources as far as ways to get back and forth from the airport. It's not like today. You know, you don't have the shuttles and the Ubers and all that stuff. So on the last day of the tour, uh, Johnny Gentle arrived by car and it was actually a car that he had, quote, deputized from one of the support acts who was taken ill. So already he's borrowing a car from one of the other acts. His girlfriend was with him at that time. The show ended at 10.30 p.m. on Saturday night. Their tickets were for 1 o'clock or roughly shortly thereafter out of Heathrow that next morning. Gentle meets Cochran in the corridor outside his dressing room and says, the rest of the show are traveling by coach. But because I was only standing in for somebody, I had to come by car. Eddie knew this and asked me if I was going back to London, if I could take him, Gene, and Sharon. Sharon was standing next to him and said, please, but I had a full load and I couldn't take more than two. I really would have driven them otherwise. Eddie said he would have to take a cab. So Eddie hails a cab to Heathrow, which is about 100 miles from Bristol. The driver is a young gentleman named George Martin at only 19 years of age. And into the cab go Eddie, Gene Vincent, Sharon Sheely, and Patrick Tompkins, who was the tour manager. No. Okay. It's not that George Martin. No, 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 no. No, different George Martin. The Ford console, which arrived and was littered with confetti, and the driver, again, George Martin, explained that it had been used for a wedding earlier that day. After packing their bags, Vincent, Cochran, Sheely, and Tompkins left the Grand Hotel at 11 p.m. The cab hurtled through the dark Wiltshire night at about 70 miles per hour, winding its way through the small towns. Around midnight, they reached the outskirts of Chippenham, which is a small town 20 miles out from Bristol. Passing under the narrow Chippenham Railway viaduct, the car had to negotiate a gradual curve in the road, leading up to a gentle hill gradient called Roden Lane. The road had recently been regraveled, said Hal Carter, who actually first got this account from Pat Tompkins, who was in the car. Well, so re-graveled. Re-graveled, Not yeah. paved. Re-graveled. Wow. And the driver was racing like a madman to get Eddie back to the airport. He had taken a wrong turn, and he was doubling back on himself 
towards Bristol. Pat saw the road signs and said, you're going the wrong way, mate. You should have turned left there. We're somewhere back where we came from. So the driver hits the brakes. Now, this is where the story differs. Some people say that Martin misjudged the curve in the road and the car emerged from the viaduct, lost control by hitting a curb. Others say that it was a failed traffic light and Martin actually swerved to avoid colliding with another vehicle. But whatever happened, the car does go off the road. It spins and it goes into a backward skid, bouncing off of the curb and both sides of the roads for about 150 yards before it runs into a concrete road lamp. The impact snaps the rear left roof right away and badly buckled the left rear panel, which bore an imprint of the lamppost itself. Cochrane was thrown upwards against the roof of the car by force and then propelled onto the road. So he's thrown right out of the car. Jeez. Out of the car, yeah. The doors burst on contact. Jean Vincent sustains a broken collarbone. Sheely gets a number of back injuries and a fractured pelvis. The driver Oof. and Pat Tompkins emerge unscathed. Now, the time, the exact time of the accident is actually still in question. At this point, streetlights went out at midnight. So they cut off all the streetlights at midnight. So when the ambulance pulled up, it was completely dark. So some residents in the area said they had heard different things and, you know, then saw an ambulance and all this stuff happened. So the exact time of the crash is still not known. At first, one of the uh, local papers said that they first thought it was a plane crash. And one of the people in the neighborhood ran out to see a wrecked car, several people lying about, a large guitar, and scattered photographs, which had become open from the boot, which is, you know, the British word for trunk. I telephoned an ambulance from a nearby kiosk. So the ambulance arrived, takes everybody to St. Martin's Hospital, located in Bath, England, where they are treated by the emergency staff. Cochrane was, he was unconscious at the time of the arrival. He was suffering some, from severe brain lacerations. Oof. If you think about it, he went flying out of the car like his head. Yeah, you, you keep you you suddenly stop. Your brain keeps moving. That's bad. <sighs> but he hung on for 16 hours. At 4 p.m. on Easter Sunday, Eddie Cochran was pronounced dead. He was only 21 years old. It made every major headline in Britain, but actually did not become a major story in the U.S. until much later. So it was actually a minor story in the U.S., but it was all over British news. So so was he the only fatality from the accident? He was the only one. Yeah. Oh, wow. Everyone else lived. Three days afterwards, Gene Vincent discharged himself from the hospital with the intention of flying back to Los Angeles with Cochran's body. Sheely was also discharged, but again, she had suffered a broken pelvis, so she was in much worse shape. Gene called his mother in Norfolk, Virginia, and said, Eddie and I started together, and we're coming home together. Oh, Jesus. Wow. They returned to the United States after the accident. Cochran's body was flown home and a funeral service was observed on April 25th at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Cypress, California. Martin, the driver, was convicted of dangerous driving and fined 50 pounds. That's all he received. And he was disqualified from driving for 15 years, so he lost his ability to drive a cab. Uh, his driving disqualification was lifted on May 7th of 1968 after a judge in Bristol determined that Martin had suffered considerable financial hardship. The car and the other items in the crash were impounded by local police until the coroner's inquest could be held. This is where we get a fun fact. Question mark. Question mark. It was, it's not like a, tra Travis, say it. Fun fact. 
There it is. It's more of a fun fact. Mm -hmm. So as we mentioned, the items in the car itself were impounded by the local police. David Harmon, a police cadet at the station, who would later become known as David D of the band Dave D, Dozy, Beaky, Mitch, and Tish. Huh, there you go. That's a taught, catchy. Yeah. Uh, taught himself to play the guitar on Cochran's then impounded Gretsch guitar. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a little uh, Creepy. ghoulish, actually. Morbid. Yeah, it's a little morbid. Uh, this dead guy's not going to need his guitar anymore. I'm just going to play it. Uh, the guitar eventually found its way into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which it should have. Absolutely. Um, I thank, thank God the thing was returned. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, there wasn't some, like, some, some weird cop sitting around in Sheffield, England playing it or whatever. <laughs> right, exactly. He, he didn't, he wasn't a cop anymore. He was, he was No, he, he, he played uh, in Davy D, Doozy, Beaky, <laughs> Mick and Tish. Dicky, Mickey, yeah. Another great he Super. anymore. He was in a, a great band. Yeah, which found success in 1968 with their song Legend of Xanadu. Uh, the posthumous album My Way was released in 1964. There was no doubt that Cochran was a prolific performer, and it was amazing to see footage and interviews of about Eddie Cochran. They love him in the UK. Yes. He is revered in the UK. And we think about the British invasion as like a, a massive thing that happened in the U.S. A flip it, six years before, Eddie's crushing it over mm -hmm. there. It's it's the U.S. invasion over there. Well, yeah. as we talked about with um, in the Robert Johnson episode and the John Bonham episode, there's this weird little game of ping pong that seems to take place across the Atlantic where these American blues musicians influenced 60s, rock and rollers that came out of England who then inspired a whole new generation of American rock acts. It was just kind yeah. of back and forth and back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, because Eddie had the Beatles, Eddie did the, I mean, I know, I know what's coming up cause I, I wrote mm -hmm. this. So uh, I'll let Will pick it over, but yeah, you are absolutely right. There is that like fun little game of what's the next import. Because, as we mentioned, Cochran was unique because he was one of these artists who actually wrote his own songs. Bear in mind, these were written by Eddie Cochran. Elvis, as we know, did a lot of covers. Right. That's a nice way of saying it. That's a very it. diplomatic That's way nice, of putting it. Very yeah. nice way of saying it. Yeah. But Eddie was writing his own material. He's also credited with being one of the first guitar players. This is very interesting when you think about the people that follow this trend, who unwound the third string on the guitar so he could bend them up which I'm sure you could think of a festival of guitar players who did that. Pete Townsend, Eric Clapton, David Gilmore, the list goes on. In fact... Huh, gosh, that's a lot of um, Jimmy British Pace. guitar players. Mm -hmm. An innovation which was actually you know, credited to Cochran and then utilized by Joe Brown, a guitarist in the UK, and then it became just, a, like I said, all those guys did it. Here's a list of artists who have cited Cochran as not only an influence, but have covered his songs either on albums or in concert. Here we go. Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, The Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen, UFO Band, Van Halen, Tom Petty, Rod Stewart, T-Rex, Cliff Richard, The Who, The Stray Cats, The Beach Boys, The Beatles, Blue Cheer, Led Zeppelin, 
the White Stripes, the Sex Pistols, Sid Vicious himself, Rush, who did a cover of Summertime Blues, Simple Minds, George Thorogood, Guitar Wolf, Paul McCartney, Alan Jackson, Terry Manning, The Mauve, David Bowie, Jimi Hendrix, and Johnny Halliday. Oh, and you too. That's a couple people that I might have heard. So so should I have, should I know these people? Are they important? Um, Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. I'm a simple hillbilly. (laughs) One of two, actually. One of two. (laughs) Yeah, that's, 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 that's an amazing list. There was a British rock journalist, Nick Cohn, who wrote this piece about his influence on The Who and Led Zeppelin specifically. And here's what Nick Cohn wrote. It's not as easy as it sounds. Anyone who can compress the atmosphere of a whole period into six songs, who can crystallize the way that any generation worked, must have something very unusual going for him. Pete Townsend of The Who is the only person who has caught the 60s in the same way, and he has had to work his ass off to do it. Cochran did it almost instinctively. For that alone, I'd rate him high indeed. He was the first major American rocker to do a full, unaborted tour in Britain, and his impact was tremendous. He was the starting point from which British pop really began to get better. He was a mover and a writer and a voice. He played his own things on guitar. He was really a musician. He sang songs that weren't just crap, but did somehow get across a real basic attitude. All of that was new. No poncing about, no dressing up or one-shot gimmicking. It was something solid happening. So Billy Fury saw him and woke up. Or the Beatles saw him. Or the Stones. Or the Who. Or the Move. That's how things got started. And at that point, after the style of James Dean, Cochran got killed. He very much was like James Dean. He was was handsome. He was young. He had so much potential. And it was taken away in a car accident. Yeah. Car accident. And and then the, but then so you you really kind of start to think about some of the episodes we've done this year. Mm-hmm. If you take out Eddie Cochran and there's no Robert Johnson, if if his master tapes aren't saved and they don't put out that you know King of the Delta Blues release in the '60s, we might not get Led Zeppelin. There no. may not have been a there may not have been a Who. May mm-hmm. not have gotten the Beatles or the Stones. And then, and then and then if you don't if you don't get the Beatles and you don't get the Who and you don't get Led Zeppelin. I don't know that you get any of the American rock acts that sprung up that were inspired by them in the seventies and eighties. Moreover, How, what, what a what a what a much more barren and awful place the world of music is, minus people like that. In, in both cases, their lives were incredibly short. And, and think about what you potentially lose, because bear in mind that sixties was the first wave of the British invasion. There mm-hmm. was a second one, which I believe included Queen. Correct? Weren't they yeah. second wave? Yeah. So you potentially lose that too, which is a little scary. Yeah, um, but then, but then there's there's a a um, you start to think about the, the the branches of that tree. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, okay. Well, if there's not Robert Johnson who died when he was 27, and there's not Eddie Cochran who died when he was 21, then you know there may not be Led Zeppelin, and there may not be the Who, and there may not be the Beatles, and there may not be the Stones. And if there's not them, then there's almost nobody else. Yeah, and, and, and like you said, then there's no Led Zeppelin, there's no Queen, there's no anybody that that heard the Beatles or heard the Who or heard Led Zeppelin and said, "Wow, I want to be in a band." Yeah. That sounds really awesome. So there's no Tom Petty, probably. There's no Jimmy Hendrix. There's no infinite list of musicians to calm. 
and and it's it's amazing and you think about the influence that this dude had in an uh, in a a life that lasted 21 years and a career that lasted that anybody actually knew of about four it's amazing and you mentioned jimmy hendrix he's one of the people that early in his career played summertime blues along with pete townsend led zeppelin blue cheer I mean, it, just the list goes on here. Straight it's insane. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Brian Setzer, obviously hugely influenced by Eddie Cochran. Yep. Yeah. And and then and then it's a and then it's a country hit for Alan Jackson thirty years later, which yes. is crazy. Yeah. 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 And then Rush did it in the nineties, so it just keeps coming back. Um, and a uh, correction here: I, I made a mistake on the Gretsch model, which I will now correct. Mm-hmm. It is actually a sixty-one twenty. I believe I said a fifty-two thirty. It is a 6120, which is, interestingly enough, the same model that Brian Setzer plays. Oh, funny. Oh, wow. And rock artist Mark Bolin actually took the Sunburst painting and applied it to his own Gibson Les Paul guitar. And that is actually a Sunburst painting you can get. Eddie Cochran's red Sunburst is actually a model you can get on the both Les Paul and the Gretsch. Um, if any of you are wondering what happened to that area that was deemed so dangerous in Chippenham, well, they actually removed all evidence of the tragedy. There is a single plaque on the grass in honor of Eddie, but they have completely reconfigured the road, repaved it, put in lights, so it's nothing like what it was. Uh, in 1987, Eddie Cochran was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. His contribution to the genre of rockabilly has recognized by Rockabilly Hall of Fame. A number of his songs have been re-released after his death, including Come On Everybody, which was number, this is crazy, number 14 in the 1988 UK chart. Number 14. Wow. Rolling Stones magazine ranked Eddie Cochran 84 on its 2003 list of 100 greatest guitar players of all time. Cochran's life is chronicled in several publications, including Don't Forget Me, The Eddie Cochran Story, Three Steps to Heaven, The Very Best of Eddie Cochran, which is a compilation, and on September 27th of 2010, the mayor of Bell Gardens, California, declared October 3rd Eddie Cochran Day. So before we play the final song, and I think you all know what it's going to be, we're going to do a few socials, sign off, and leave you with a timeless song. I can only call it that because Eddie Cochran recorded it in the 50s. It is still played and relevant today. Okay, our social stuff. Uh, If you guys are feeling generous and would like to help out the show, you can do that at patreon.com backslash rockandrollheaven. You can find us on Twitter at rockandrolllt. Our Instagram is rockandrollheavenlt. Facebook, rockandrollheavenpod. Still not saying our website. You can email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. Please make sure to check out all the other and awesome Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. And if you guys are interested in purchasing any of my candles for Christmas, you're too late. <laughs> Can't get it to you in time. Can't get it to you in time. I'm sorry. But but you should but you should but for birthday gifts or yes, graduations or bar mitzvahs or soon I'll be having my New Year's scents no, in there and I'll have my Valentine's Day scents in there and so you could buy those and if you order those today you'll probably get them by Valentine's Day maybe <laughs> I don't know maybe <laughs> uh, uh, this is they're good candles she, she LD uh, sent sent me a couple uh, for me and my wife to use and they're great. I, we've, I like them because I find 
honeysuckle because I'm a hillbilly to be the sweetest smell that there that there is. Yeah. There, there's nothing like honeysuckle hanging on humid, hot South Carolina air in July. Mm. Th- th- like there's there's nothing that matches it. And so she made me a honeysuckle candle. And a lot of those scented candles that you buy are overwhelming. They punch you in the face with whatever they, they over soak the candles with. And hers don't do that. It's a light, lovely smell. Thank you. And I have been getting that I really enjoy. I've been getting high on my own supply lately. I've been living off of the strudel. I've gotten high on my own supply before. <laughs> so before we do our final song, I I want to I want to check in on our Whamageddon. How are we doing on Whamageddon? I I'm out unfortunately. I lost. Oh, what happened? Okay, my wife loves Christmas music. Is what happened. <laughs> she and I had artfully avoided it for more than a month because yeah, there are stations now that start playing Christmas music the day after Halloween, Jeez. and the minute they do. My wife is all up in it. She loves Christmas music. <laughs> Still, I'd managed to avoid it somehow. And then on about Monday or Tuesday, we have a like a Bose that we use as our alarm clock because we need something really loud to wake us up, both of us. She's a teacher. She has to wake up early to go to work. And so that alarm clock goes off at 545. So I'm laying there, barely conscious, jolted from my slumber by... Christmas music. And what did I hear? And I said, damn it! No! I lost! Off to Wamhalla. Uh, you fought brave, yeah. my brother. And then I heard it again today, so I was—I would have been out either way. But yeah. Yeah, We have skillfully uh, But I, I was, not only did I lose, I was, I was awakened to it at 545 oh, on Monday or Tuesday morning. That's I'm so sorry. Yeah, it sucked, yeah. We have successfully navigated our way out of it, mainly because uh, I order everything online, so we don't have to go into stores. <laughs> and seriously, you, I, I don't know if we were on the verge of divorce the other, uh, what was it, Friday, mm-hmm. when we were on our way to go get me, you know, medication. For, oh, right, yeah. Uh, Will was like, we have to listen to the 80s at 8 on KHERTH 101. And I'm like, fine, okay, that's fine. If if we hear if we get out on Wham, I'm divorcing you. <laughs> if we get out because you wanted to listen to '80s music, I'm divorcing you. And he's like, they're not going to play Christmas music. And literally, the next song was the waitress Christmas rapping. Christmas rapping. And I'm Ugh. like, hey, we're done here. We are done. And I turned the radio off and we drove in silence. I, I I think it's really rude for radio stations to not warn you that it's common. Yeah, there should be like a in like, the- like I mean, do they they should be hip to the fact that this is a thing people do now. So, you know, Jimmy, Jack, and Tony, or whoever the wacky morning crew is on the station that my wife sets the radio to, <laughs> that starts playing Christmas music November first. That's rude. Um, maybe you could say, "Hey, if you're taking part in Whamageddon, might want to cut your radio down because because yeah. yeah. we're exactly. fixing to we're because we're fixing to play Andrew and and uh, what's his name." George. George. Oh, yeah. Um, I remembered Andrew Ridgely. Yeah, that, that is not done often. <laughs> not George Michael. Michael. Name that comes hell? to mind with Wham. Andrew Ridgely. Yeah. Woo. Okay. Woo. I'm on the fence about whether to keep that in or just take it out. <laughs> I should probably leave that one in. But they, seriously, they should warn people like, because if you're, look, if you're walking through a store and they're playing Christmas music, you're on your own. Yeah. I get that. 
But if I'm listening to the radio, you should tell me it's coming. Yeah. It's like a spoil. I like spoilers for, for TV shows <laughs> and stuff. Like, you know, if you listen to, to the radio, they'll be like, hey, look, we're about to talk about the, uh, you know, season ender for whatever TV show. So spoiler alert. Yeah. Heads up. yeah. And you don't, yeah. but you don't warn me that you're about to play last Christmas. I just. And apparently there's an entire subdivision of people also playing what's called LDB. Do you know what this is? No. It's the little drummer boy. Really? So it's along the same lines as last Christmas, but people double up their luck and they'll take part in the Whamageddon LDB challenge. And it just sounds like... What, so which, ver which version? I yeah. think it's just the song. Yeah, oh, like wow. Because there are so many. That's hard. That's why it's so hard. I'm like, no, I'm I'm in year four of Whamageddon. I've done really well. I've <laughs> never lost a game of Whamageddon. And you've beaten me in it every year. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Like, I knowing the rules keeps you in, and knowing how to get around every possible trigger for that is very important. Because if you guys don't know, it's a little late because this this will come out the day before Christmas, but or the day before Christmas Eve. But if you guys don't know the rules, maybe you can play next year. But the rules are simple. It's called Whamageddon, and you you're you're in it until you hear the song Last Christmas by Wham, which means that you can have a remix, you can have a cover, you can have your kids sing it. It can be done by anybody else other than Wham. But if you hear... Oh, so you can hear like Taylor Swift's remake and that's you're sure. safe. Yes, yeah. yes. You're safe. Now. Until you hear that unbelievably dated <laughs> 1980s yes. synth. Going, and then you're screwed, which is exactly how I felt Monday and or but Monday or Tuesday morning, whichever it was. And then you go to Whamhalla, and it cannot be done in malice like that one time you tried to mess me up the first year I introduced you to Whamageddon. While you were in the bathroom, I was in the bathroom. You can't do that. It cannot be done out of malice or spite. You can't walk in with a cell phone and be like, "I'm playing it." Yeah, it's got to be done. Which is what I did. Yeah, it's got to be done organically. So, I'm sorry to say that my brother is now in Whamhalla. He was a brave soldier. We love him. He will be missed. Well, here's an important ruling. Let's say someone has a Spotify Christmas playlist. And it's on there. But so are, like, 25 other songs. Is them playing the playlist? Like, would that count them? If they actively know that you're playing Wham again. It doesn't count? Yes, okay. it does count. But if it comes on at a party... It's you're out. Then you're, you're, you're screwed. Out yeah. You're out don't go, way. don't, don't, don't go party. Don't you're go shop. Yeah. You're out either way. We can't go party anyway. I got eliminated one, in Christmas parties for two years. One in 16 people now has COVID in California. So we're not yeah, even there, there no the parties happening. There's no parties. Like, I think it dropped to one in 16. It was one in 20, which was really it was hopeful. One in 30, yeah. And before it was one in 80. Oh, and, and then last year it was zero. So uh, we're not bitter. Because right now we should be at my brother's house uh, with my brother having a belly full of beer and me. And, and me playing some sort of crappy trivia game with my brother. So I'm a little pissed. Yes. Please wear your mask, kids. Um, yes, wear your mask, kids. And also don't be a dick and play Wham. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so... Uh, Looking at you, Magic 98. <laughs> <laughs> so this is actually the last official episode 
of the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast for the year 2020. Hallelujah, guys. We've almost made it out. Woo! What we have left is actually going to be our year in review episode. And then on New Year's Eve, we will have a very special episode, which is our musical draft, which you guys will hear everything when that comes which out. we're quite excited about this is yes. basically going to set the table for most of next year yeah yeah well yeah. now there, there will be some holes that we get to fill here and there with some single week episodes but we're draft we're going to do a draft we got we've already recorded it actually and we're going to we're going to play that for you coming up here soon and we're going to basically lay out that we're doing big heavy hitter all-timers that are going to be multi-part episodes we're already working on them mm-hmm. um uh, the first one I think is going to be pretty awesome. Hope everybody will um, enjoy that in January. But yeah, that's that's coming up, and it'll it'll kind of let you know what we're doing for most of next year. Yeah, and so we're pretty excited about it. Uh, I think it's going to be an awesome thing. And of course, yeah, like TJ said, there will be room for those one episoders. So I'm 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 really looking forward to this because I think it's not only gives us the freedom to be able to put in all those little things that we weren't able to in you know, those one-shot episodes or, you know, even multi-episodes, this gives us a lot of breathing room to give a lot of information about the artist. So very, very excited about this. And we really are just talking about four people each that we absolutely adore 100%. So we're very excited about next year. So um, with that being said, I think that's pretty much all of our business. So I want to thank you guys for checking out this episode. Please check us out next week when we were going to be doing our year in review and with that guys please understand that we are going to be recording that within like the next day or two so if someone passes in you know the time between the time that we record it and the time that we release it please understand also understand that 250,000 significant musicians have died this year and yep. we can't mention them all. It's staggering. Yes. Yeah. The, yeah. The, 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 the list is appallingly long. Scary. And that was just from me. That was just what I was able to find. We didn't even add what Will could find and what you could find. We just went with what I found, which was a stupid amount of people. Ridiculous. Yeah. It was ridiculous. So. Yeah. But we're going to try, if uh, LD doesn't feel still feel like somebody's stabbing her in the face and standing on her throat, <laughs> to make it end in a slightly upbeat manner we'll see yes 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 cool so thank you guys so much and we will see you next week bye everybody toodaloo we're so uh we're gonna close this one out i want to thank first of all eddie cochran i feel much better knowing more about the guy who basically pioneered rock and roll from the 60s on um <laughs> So that's good. And also thank you to Brandon. This was your episode. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. And we're going to close out with the most notable tune by Mr. Eddie Cochran, Summertime Blues. Son, you gotta work late. Sometimes I wonder what I'm gonna do, but there ain't no cure for the summertime blues. Oh, well, 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 